With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Monergy Life. This is your host, Robert Fisher. And tonight I have the great pleasure of welcoming Koss Merte, who is the CEO of Koss Athletics. And Koss should be calling in any minute. Uh, Koss has had a very, very interesting history in uh, entering the entrepreneurial field. And I can't wait to hear some of the details about it. Uh, I think his story will resonate with a lot of the listeners. Hold on, I think that's Koss right now. Yes. Koss, is that you? Yes, it is. Welcome to Monergy Life. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Excellent. Uh, I was just telling uh, our listeners a little bit about you, and I said you were about to call in, and there you were. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) I was just briefly uh, giving the listeners a little bit of your background, hoping that you'll flesh it out some more. Um, I first met Koss at a meeting of uh, TED, TEDx New York, where we get together, watch a video, and discuss it. And I was really impressed by his story, and I thought that um, a lot of my listeners would also be similarly impressed. So, Koss, tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you got to be the CEO of Casa Athletics. And so, uh, you want me to backtrack where everything began? Yeah, was... where everything began and uh, <laughs> and the path that you took. Yeah. So, um, I mean, as a child, I grew up under the poverty line, and was I was that in always New York? asked. Yeah, in New York, I grew up in the mid-80s, like early 90s, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where the neighborhood was fairly bad, Um, a lot of drugs. It was a very drug-infested neighborhood. Um, And we, me and my mom and my siblings, we didn't have much. Um, And when people used to ask me, what do do I want to be when I grow up, I would tell them, I want to be rich. And and rich I became. So, but first it was a, it was a struggle, and and the first opportunity that I received was through the world of drugs. Okay. So I I came. Yeah. So how did you? Uh, you said that the neighborhood had a lot of drug activity, and at what yeah. age did you first become aware of that drug activity? So I mean, as a kid, I was I used to see it five, six years old, just in my hallway and walking down the steps, I used to see people shooting up. Um, you know, it was all over the place. Uh, there was dope lines, like, coming around my block. Like, it, was, it looked like it was a legal thing to do. It didn't look like there was anything wrong with it. Is that because it was so open and out in the, you know, open and for everyone to see? 
Yes, yes. It was, it was very open, and and everybody accepted. Uh, even though we had a tight community, it was, but my it's uh, the norm. So, right. Uh, what percentage of of the people would you say were involved in the drug trade at that point when you were a kid growing up? I mean, mostly everybody I knew was involved, not not per se like actually dealing, but also having people look out, like people not talking about it or telling other people about it, just like everybody was a tight community and knew what was going down. I mean, you could say everybody was knew and was probably a part of it. Um... I mean, everybody I knew was like, don't snitch, don't say anything. Uh, you see something go down, it's like it goes down. So I see. Yeah. So at, at what age were you um, actually started to, what age did you start working in it? Were you used as a lookout first or some type of a bad guy when you were a kid? How did you get involved? No. So at, at school, like I was... Uh, Actually, not at school. My my cousin actually introduced me to uh, weed. I was like probably ten years old, and um, and I came in contact with marijuana. And little by little, like I asked him, where could I get a larger amount? Like I was smoking just a little bit, and then I began selling at school around my neighborhood. I became known as the weed guy, and then around the age of thirteen, fourteen. I was like, we got involved with like cold crack and heroin, and just started dealing uh, more, more uh, hardcore drugs. Mm-hmm. And when point. you made the transition from marijuana to uh, coke and the crack, um, was that a pivotal transition? Would you say? Was it you know sort of moving up in the in the chain, and did you get? Did you then get employees at that point? Did you start to have people working for you? So, so at that at that point, it was uh, it was it was like I had my my uh, block on Rivington Street was known for like the coke, and uh, I began selling out the corner, and then I I moved down the block. I got involved with uh, on Broom Street, and this guy like. Put, got put me under his wing, and I started selling for him for a little while. And then by the age I was like 16, 17, I, I he gave up the corner to me, like and I, and all the people that he was managing, like they was working for me. And then uh, Why, eventually, let me, let me stop you for a minute. Why did he give it up to you? Was he moving, or he just? So yeah, he he moved. He like got out of the game, retired, went to Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and just stopped dealing with the lifestyle, I guess. And that was probably one of the last times. I mean, I've seen him here and there, but I haven't really came in contact right. with him like that. So he gave you that corner, and, and and that probably was a very lucrative opportunity for you, right? Yes. And, uh, and I know everybody. Everybody know me. He's of like the hard work that I was putting out there. I was day in and out. Like I was still going to school, and still I was like very educated. 
um, had always honors at school, was really good, but also was inspired and, and grasped the opportunity to become what I wanted to be. And Which was rich. I, yes. So at and, the uh, age of 16 or, that, yeah. right, at the age of 16 or 17, after you took over the corner, about how much were you making each week? Um, I was probably making uh, $1,500 a day um, or two grand, depending on the days. But uh, what made, what I, I actually pivoted and when my neighborhood like switched up and got gentrified. So at like 18, 19, I just switched like my whole target market. Uh, and... I stopped dealing with crack. I just was dealing with coke, like high lucrative customers, lawyers, judges, doctors, you name it. Anybody that had money I was targeting. I had everybody that was working for me at that point was uh, had to wear suits. Uh, we drove really, really expensive vehicles. Yeah. And, um, really? They I, wore suits yeah. to deliver the product to all these customers? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. So we 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 uh changed our whole like dress code. Um, I had everybody like you had to wear a tie, drive a nice car. I had a a vehicle connection as well. Um, so I made about ten thousand business cards, uh, and then I started the, like going up to people. I was going to very expensive bars, like going up to a random like people's, you know, engaging that I was uh, dealing illegal substances. I told them I was running a 24-hour drug delivery service, and from there the word of mouth went crazy. And I stopped dealing at the corner, and I was basically just collecting and just uh, not doing anything at all for a little while, just uh, supervising, basically. So at that um, point, let's say you were about what, 20, 20 years old? I was 19. Old. You were 19. I was 19. And, and you had how many employees working for you at that point? Uh, I started with like 10, and at, by the end, I was almost to 20, um, and I was making over $2 million a year at that point. Right. And so what were your thoughts when you were – involved in that. Could you rewind to that and share with our listeners, what was your take on the whole business operation and your position in this? What were your thoughts at that time before you ended up in prison? I'm just curious. I, I don't know. I just had a very, I could say, devilish attitude, like very selfish, very arrogant didn't really care about anybody except for myself. And I was the only person in the world that was important at that point. Like, that's what about I your family? I'm sure you took care of your family with all the money, right? I, I did, like, but they didn't want anything to do with that lifestyle. And uh, my family, so my siblings, they, they took a totally different route. And uh, at life, and um, like my sisters, my sister became executive director at Goldman Sachs for ten years. My brother worked for IBM. My other sister worked for Berkeley. Like they all went 
and graduated from school and so like we're very very smart but i just i found a quicker way to make more money than them and um they didn't want to deal with it they actually like you know they we grew up the same way but they grew up we i just grew up with a different mentality of hustling and right. getting out there so, and becoming more accomplished this may sound like a strange question, but what did you do with all the money that you were making? So I spend a lot, just uh, a, a lot, lot of partying, mm-hmm. a lot of partying. I mean, money goes quick. I I got caught with a lot of money, um, uh, and then also just vehicles. I. I like bought four four vehicles, like a hundred thousand dollars each, like uh houses, rentals, um, apartments. Right. It was it was uh I was nineteen and I didn't it was just like I'm the guy, I'm the man. I still had money but I didn't manage it correctly. Mhm. And so what ended up happening uh, at this particular point, how long was it before you attracted the attention of law enforcement and what happened? So what happened <laughs> was, um, uh, I don't even want to disclose this, but... Uh, well, uh, don't one, say anything you're other, not comfortable with, but but just... Yeah, just now, I mean, I'll, keep, I'll, I'll, I'll talk around the bushes. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, event, eventually, somebody in my, like, one of my workers, they got uh, caught up, and they basically spilled the beans um, and and told them everything, told them every, where everything was. Like, this person was one of my, like, managers, and they knew, like, where the stuff was at, and, like, I trusted this person like dearly but it, that's how they basically went down and that's how most like operations go down um yeah yeah that's so that's, that's a how little you got bit caught. deeper story no yeah yeah i mean uh, if you if you google my if you google my like name course monte it'll show up as i got caught you know because of so many people that had my cards um, and then somebody just like eventually got the law enforcement ran into my car, but it, that was a total lie, and it went down some, you know, with somebody else, it's, you know, spilling the beans. Right. And did you then, when you got caught, did you go to trial or you made a deal with the, the prosecutors? How did that work? Yeah. So I I copped out. I I said so I was facing twelve to twenty four years. Mm-hmm. I I've been in and out of jail and prison since I was 13, like little short skid bids, nothing serious uh, mm-hmm. until this point. But I had two other felonies on my record, so at this point they was charging me with a kingpin charge, but they didn't. Um, they they charged me as a kingpin, but didn't it didn't end up sticking. Mm-hmm. Um. That's another like legal like I don't want to get too legal with the legal right. system, but um, eventually uh, there was facing twelve to twenty four years. I 
uh, and they brought it down to seven years. Mm-hmm. And I, I just got very lucky with the lawyer and definitely my, my family came and really helped. Like my sister is really big in law. Like she helped me out a lot. Um, she worked with the lawyer, so everything worked out. And I, I mean, seven years is still a lot, but compared to the 12 to 24 years, I was right, very right. Right. Uh, but did you get out earlier than seven years, or did you serve? Seven and then years? I got, and then I got, I came home in four years. In four years. So, okay. Yeah. So uh, I got very lucky with uh, what was it, Governor Patterson? Mm-hmm. Um, he switched up the law while I was in there, and I was granted the opportunity to do half of my time, a little bit less than half of my time. But uh, right. I ran into altercations in there where I had to do an extra year. So, yeah. And um, right. I mean, we could continue talking about right. that. So tell us a little about the transformation that happened to you when you were incarcerated. What happened? So when I, when I went into prison, uh, the first thing you see is the medical unit, and they start taking blood tests and, you know, just taking uh, basic physical. Um, and I was called back into, like, a week or two later, I was called back into the medical unit, and they told me, did you know you have, like, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, like, if you don't change your diet or start exercising, like, you have like five years to live and I'm like I'm not gonna die in prison you know and I I uh I I started working out and this is where I came up with my uh fitness program um I eventually lost 70 pounds in six months in my nine by six cell and just using my own body weight I had nothing else to work with and I managed to lose all that weight in that small amount of time. And I came up with a unique formula that I'm uh, using for my fitness classes now. Right. And yeah. and how much time did you spend in solitary confinement when you were in prison? So I went in there, I was uh, 30 days, 30 nights. Like, so I, uh, towards my end of my bid, I was uh, about to be released. I I was going to come home in a little bit over three years, about three mm-hmm. years and two months. Right. And um, I, I got into altercation with an officer. Uh, they basically messed around with me, like uh, beat me up, like was uh, sent to like the whole of solitary confinement, as you call it. And uh, I was on 24-hour lockdown. I had nothing else to do, and uh, they just threw me in there, um, and I was there for 30 days, 30 nights, and I was uh, basically left with nothing. I was stripped away from all my property. Um, I couldn't do anything but just write, and I had uh, I had paper, I had a pen, I had an envelope, and I had my Bible. And I was never into reading the Bible. I was, like, anti, you know, Christ, whatever. But I had a Bible um, my sister sent me in the early early part of my incarceration, but I just always carried it around. Um, 
So at that point, I got into trouble with him and ended up in this position. And I wrote this 10-page letter out to my family, you know, letting them know that I was in this this horrible situation and that I fucked up again. Excuse my language. That's okay. Uh, and I messed up again, again, and over again. And then I was at the point where I was just very aggravated with myself, aggravated at everybody else, and was basically playing the victim role. Like, I've never done anything wrong. Like, why does this... Why am I in this position? Um, and now... I wrote this page, ten page letter. I had no stamp to send out this letter, uh, so I'm, ha- I'm in this situation where I had no no type of communication. And my sister, at a random like blue, like wrote me a letter and told me to read Psalm 91 and from the Bible. And I was like, No, I'm not like. Why would I pick up the Bible? It's just a waste of time. Right. Uh, and this is what I'm thinking in my head. And then uh, eventually I had nothing else to do, and I said, why not? Like, that's <clears> what I have to work with. So I picked it up, and I began reading Psalm 91. And as soon as I started reading it, a stamp fell out of my Bible. And that was the stamp that I needed to send out that letter to or, you know, inform my family that I was in trouble and I needed the, their help and um, and tell them that I'm going to do more time. Um, so that really, like, brought some tra- spiritual transformation definitely and really changed my life, just that simple stamp. And uh, right. knowing that, that there's something greater out there than, than myself. It really humbled me, and I read the Bible from front to back and really understood that I was doing something wrong and that I was causing, you know, not a, not only affecting myself and my family, but the thousands of people that I came in contact with and, and the, their families as well. So it just really humbled me. Mm-hmm. Now let me ask something at that point after you read the Bible and you were humbled, if somebody would have asked you, what do you want to do? What's the most important thing to you in your life? What would you have answered? At that point was, that's a, that's a pretty tough question. Um, I guess just continue living and, and giving back and doing, doing something righteous. That's, that's basically what I, I, why I took this journey that I'm taking now with, uh, with my company and um, just trying to change something and, mm-hmm. and uh, repay back, I guess, society for what I've done and, and see what I could give back to this world. I, I feel like God put me here for some, some type of reason, and I'm, uh, I'm just following the path now. Right. So, yeah. when did you? When were you released from prison? How many years ago? Uh, so it was just not that long ago. Uh, I've been home about sixteen months now. Last right. year, uh, and and I've accomplished so much, and that's why I feel like I'm so blessed 
and and we see like so many uh welcomings and open arms and the the connections I build I just I basically transformed my hustle from illegal entrepreneur to a legal entrepreneur and it's working it's right. definitely working and so the brainchild for Castle uh, Athletics actually occurred when you were in prison and developed that workout in your cell yeah so actually when so I, I developed this workout and I actually helped over 20 people in prison lose weight and it was, I started a little trend out there and then uh, I mean out there in there so when I when I landed in the solitary confinement, I actually had time to write this out, and I like wrote out a spreadsheet with routines, and and we had time to think of what I really want to come up with. Uh, and then I came home, and I started doing it as a hobby, just helping people. Didn't really care about charging or any type of money. I, I landed a. I was fortunate to find a job. Uh, as soon as I came home, um, and then I ended up meeting this uh, this organization that really helped me out. It's called the Five Ventures, and yeah. they feel they feel that anybody that ran illegal uh, entrepreneurship, like we you know ran something, a drug dealer or you know a gang leader in the streets, and landed in prison. They definitely have the transferable skills to run their own business. Um, we just need to redirect their their paths. So I ended up with them, and I had they they granted me the opportunity to join this uh, Shark Tank competition, basically like a pitching to investors for seed money to start our companies. And uh, I actually won the whole competition. Um, and I was granted some some seed money to you know begin my company, and they helped me launch it. They uh, helped me with marketing, and they still helping me with the back end of the company as well. Oh, that's great! So, and so, yeah. how is that? Uh, your company is based uh, in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, so I run my fitness boot camps in in NoHo, in 440 Lafayette. Um. It's on the corner of Aston Place and and, uh, and Lafayette, and I also do outdoor boot camps as well. So I have other trainers. Um, they run under my company as well, and we just do follow the same routine that I used while I was in there. Um, and it's just growing organically. I'm doing uh, fairly well for someone that just came home and just started something, and I just been trying to amplify my story because. I believe everybody needs to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think just it, want to thank you. Oh yeah, no, it's it's my pleasure to have you on the show, and um, yeah, I think it's a, in view of the way our society is shifting right now with the legalization of a lot of drugs. It, mm-hmm. it you know, it, it 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 puts your experience in a way in a different perspective. And for instance, in ten years from now let's say if marijuana is legal in many states, which it's becoming legalized, and even other drugs may become legal. And these drug markets may be taken over by the large corporations. So it's kind of an interesting shift that's occurring right now. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, the fact that you took advantage of an entrepreneurial opportunity in your neighborhood. In other words, you used what was available to you. You couldn't run a large corporation making tanks, for instance, because that wasn't an opportunity Mm -hmm. available to you in your neighborhood. So you took advantage of something that was available to you, and you you used the American, uh, you know, idea of capitalism to make money with it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. at the time, it was against the law. Yeah. But but yeah. it's interesting that you acquired a lot of skills that can be transferable to a different type of uh, enterprise. Yeah. And I, I think uh, anybody that ran illegal, uh, entre- like illegal entrepreneurship like that definitely has the transferable skills. They just need to find what they really want to do. Um, right. And what's your, how do you feel about other people who, let's say, were in your, in your position now? It, uh, oh, my God, we only have 90 seconds left. But uh, any word that you would give to other kids? Uh, now, not in your neighborhood where you grew up, because that's been so gentrified. So that's no longer a, yeah. <laughs> the Lower East Side, is for, for our listeners not yeah. familiar with New York, has been changed dramatically. But let's say people in another mm-hmm. part of the country or another yeah. part of the city that are growing up. What's your advice to people who don't have a world of opportunities at their fingertips? It's, there's other ways, and, and just to be patient, um, I feel education is very important, and I, I've done very well in education, but to be patient and is, and find another entrepreneur pro entrepreneur route if they want to choose that route in life. Um, but definitely the streets is not the way, and just affecting somebody physically, emotionally, uh, and not only that person around you, but also yourself, like the you could end up in prison, you could end up in the shoes, or you could end up six feet under the ground, and it's definitely not worth it. For right. Because our body is borrowed, and we're only here temporarily. Yeah, we need to take advantage of this. Let me thank yep. you so much for coming on Monergy Life, and to all our listeners, thank you, have a pleasant evening, and uh, all thank the best. Thank you so Cos Marte, who's the CEO of Cos Athletics at 444 Lafayette Street, is that the location? Yes. But uh, yes. you could all, you could uh, to all our listeners, check them out online. Cosathletics.com. Thanks again, Cos, and to everybody, have a great evening. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.